Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit us at perennialleader.com. Hello and welcome. I am Joshua. Thank you so much for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Dr. Nick Bomarito, the author of Seeing Clearly, The Buddhist Guide to Life. Nick is a professor of philosophy, and his research focuses on virtue ethics, moral psychology, and Buddhist philosophy. Nick is a fascinating guy, and I think you will enjoy the conversation. Please welcome the wise and gracious Nick Bomarito. Dr. Nick Bomarito, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. You're the author of the new book, Seeing Clearly, A Buddhist Guide to Life. Great title and, and great book. I'm excited for the conversation today. Before we get into the book, would you mind sharing some of your background? I'm a philosophy professor at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. I am trained as an analytic philosopher, but I also studied, I studied for two years at Tibet University in Lhasa. Tibetan language is the main like Buddhist language that I have. I have a little bit of Sanskrit and a little bit of Japanese, but not much. So that's, I mean, that's kind of my background. I work in ethics primarily in Buddhist philosophy. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. I was thinking maybe we could begin the conversation with the the general kind of format of the book, which I, I really enjoyed of kind of part one being philosophy, part two being the, the practice of it with kind of these shorter chapters. What gave the idea to kind of organize it in this way? Yeah, basic. I mean, I guess I sh- to be honest, I got asked to do this book and initially I was like, no, I don't no thanks. I just felt like there's so many popular books on Buddhism. The world doesn't need another one. So, and then I, but then I was kind of thinking about it. And one of the things that struck me was there's a lot of books on particular Buddhist practices, like Vipassana meditation or Zen, or like there's a lot of books on particular practices. And there's some books on Buddhist philosophy, but they're always kind of separate. It's always like you read a book on practice and it doesn't really talk about philosophy. And you read a book on philosophy and it's like you have no idea that there are all these practices. So I kind of wanted to talk about them together because on the ground, like in Nepal or Tibet, it's like they're thought of together. They're not separated in that way. So I kind of wanted to do that. And I, in the practice section, I kind of wanted to cover a lot of practices. And, you know, there the thought was like, Buddhists do a lot of different things. They do a lot of different things. In fact, no Buddhist does all of the Buddhist practices. They focus on certain ones for certain reasons or whatever. But like, I wanted to give a sense of like, how much different stuff there is practice wise in the Buddhist world. I guess it's like the short chapters I was thinking of like my my own internal laziness where it's like, it's hard to especially you're tired. And like, like when I've tried to read things I'm interested in, like after after work or whatever, it's like, I'm tired and it's like I can't go through like a 30,000 word chapter. Like I need something that is chunkable for like the time I have before bed or the time in a commute or like when I'm waiting for someone or something. And so I kind of wanted to be realistic about, hey, do you have 10 minutes? Then I'll tell you about this thing. <laughs> That's the kind of the vibe I wanted. 
I mean, I think you did a great job meeting that mark for for sure. I I really enjoyed it and, and found it to be an easy read. To start the conversation, I was hoping we could spend a bit of time on chapter one, which you you title as The Problem. And you write the basic insight of Buddhism is that the source of the fundamental problem is a mismatch between our feeling about the world and how it really is. Why would you say it's important to to have this alignment? And could you kind of elaborate more on that seeing clearly? There's a lot of variation in the Buddhist world, but that's an attempt to get of like, well, what is something that they kind of share? And, you know, one thing that's I my best attempt at what's shared is we get it wrong about the world fundamentally, not just in how we think, but in how we respond. We respond in ways that sort of presume the world to be one way, and it's it's actually not that way. You know, different Buddhists will give different accounts of where exactly the, the mismatch is or how exactly the world is different from that. But that's a kind of like motivating framework. And then, and I think it also emphasizes a kind of practical framework. It's not like a theoretical inquiry into metaphysics or the nature of the mind just because it because people are curious or whatever it's motivated by this practical problem of like life has this these features that are quite painful and quite hard to deal with and this is all motivated by being able to deal with them so that's kind of the the framing device and that i think emphasizes you know it's if you're writing a book on buddhism it's tempting to just open with the you know the life story of the buddha and I was tempted to do that. And then I was like, well, wait, especially in a traditional context, the life of the Buddha is, it's just highly symbolic. The story is meant to to teach you something and provide a framework. And so I kind of wanted to just say the framework. Then when you, let's say I talk about the life of the Buddha later, but then when you read the life of the Buddha, you, you have that framework in mind. And then the story makes a lot more sense because you know the point of the story. You also speak in this chapter kind of in terms of a framework, matter of changing your thinking or beliefs, but also how you perceive, feel, and experience life. The book seems to focus on this guide as a way to understand ourselves in a deeper level. Is that how you see this this guide as kind of this inner work? Yeah, I think it's a common mistake people make about Buddhism because in, in thinking that like what you need to change is intellectual belief, some reflective belief. I mean, there's different places where that might come from, but a lot of times it's kind of like, I. so I was raised Catholic, and it's like when people, in my experience, talked about faith or belief, it was a lot of like avowals, like a thing that you were supposed to avow out loud. You're like, I, we believe in one father, blah, blah, blah. Like you just, so there's like, I think so if you're thinking like that, you're like, oh, I see what sorts of things do Buddhists want you to avow or to sort of believe. And there, that's part of it. But I think it's broader than that. And I think the English translation of an important term, the term is avidya in Sanskrit, but it's often translated as ignorance. That translation's okay, as far as it goes. So the term avidya, a is a negative prefix, and vid, vid is like, uh, vision or video. It's like it has a sort of perceptual connotation. And so there it's like, you, it's something that you can't see. And there's a lot of metaphors in Buddhist texts involving like darkness or fog or or things like that. And 
if you really take those metaphors seriously, which I think you have to, the English word ignorance doesn't seem to go far enough. Where it's like, if I'm walking around my neighborhood and I get lost because it's foggy, I'd be like, oh, I'm just ignorant of where to go. Like, it's, I guess it's kind of <laughs> stretching the term, but that's definitely what it's supposed to be. So it's, it's, not that you can just read the book and be like, oh, yes, I avow these claims. And then you're kind of enlightened or something like that. It's a it's a longer process. And and that's, I think, where the, the philosophy and practice really connect. So, for example, in Tibetan, the term that's usually translated as meditation uh, is this term gom. And colloquially, that means to get used to something. If you move to a colder place and you say, oh, does the cold bother you? Someone that already lives there. And they say, no, 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 I'm used to it. That's that word, right? So like when you're meditating, one of the things you're doing is getting used to something that you might already accept intellectually or something that you're kind of internalizing it or trying to recalibrate your feeling. And I think we do this all the time where it's like if you have a dream where someone you know did something bad to you and then you wake up and you're kind of angry at them, <laughs> you intellectually know, you're like, well, they didn't actually do this. But you have you have to do something else to like get your emotions in line with that. And I think a lot of Buddhist practice is done in that spirit. And so if you if you have that vision of ignorance, if you really understand what that is, then the practices make a lot more sense. No, I appreciate that. Uh, another just interesting point that you brought up in this chapter was about our responses kind of being a, a result of the, the outlook we have and, and the feeling about, about the world and how it works. You provide some, uh, some good examples that definitely made me th- think about it in a new way. Is there any that kind of come to mind as an example of how we all kind of have these guides to life that, that shape our perception, whether we know it or not? The, my, my go-to one is always someone who's optimistic. I think that's, for me, a very clear case. And it's a case where I've known people who've been optimistic and I've been like, I want to be like them. <laughs> and if I want to be more like them, I don't want to just have the beliefs that they have. I want to notice the things that they noticed. I want to feel how they feel when they encounter some obstacle or like, you know, they fail an exam and then they're like, well, you know, but it's like, it's good. Now I can learn from all this and I can improve over this, you know, whatever. They just like, have this feeling when something happens that's not, and, you know, I think part of the the outlook that at least I at times want or want to be more like that is like, I want some more fundamental change in how I relate to the world as a whole, <laughs> which I find useful in thinking about what kinds of changes Buddhist practice is aiming to bring about. I appreciate that example. I also en- enjoyed the example of the of the lawyer of how they would you know, see the ice on the steps. It kind of made me think as I kind of reflect on on my own of of spending most of my adult life in the in the military, also have connections with Catholicism like yourself, of how that kind of shapes the way the way I see see things that I experience for sure. Yeah, and it's nice I've been lucky enough sometimes to live in places with famous landmarks. And sometimes people, different people visit and you go to the same landmark with different people and different people just, it's a really different experience. So it's like you go to a cathedral or something and it's like, if you go with like 
you know, a carpenter or someone like an interior designer, it's like, they're like, Oh, look at the <laughs> woodwork and they whatever. Or it's like, if you go to someone who's like a religious studies scholar, they say, Oh, look at that iconography. <laughs> they really experience the same landmark really differently. And like part of what ends up being fun is when you go with them, you get to kind of, you get a glimpse of it through their eyes. Right. And that's the that's a similar kind of thing. Next, you get into the the solution and kind of explain a bit of this philosophy practice. You describe philosophy as understanding the nature of the world, practice being the specific techniques, which I think people may be more familiar with a, with a few of those. Could you speak to kind of why both are important and, and maybe what might be a better kind of starting point over the, over the other? Yeah, I guess... An analogy I find helpful here is uh, one that you find in Buddhism a lot, but it's kind of, I'm, I take it a little bit further, but the medical analogy. So there it's like, when you're practicing medicine, or if someone's trying to be a healer or something like that, it's important that there's people who like, study the body in a really detailed way that like, they, they look at how cells work, or how proteins work, or how like, whatever. And that can be quite abstract. But part of the reason we as a society want to encourage people to do that is those people find out things that help us to cure diseases or end chronic pain or, or do things like that. So you can kind of think of like the biological sciences and the practice of medicine are like a little bit like philosophy and practice. Philosophy and practice is a kind of division that exists and I sort of organized the book that way but at times I kind of take it back <laughs> but so the, the a way in which I take it back is like there's a way in which doing philosophy is itself a practice you can describe it as like here's this practice you reflect on your concepts in a very careful way and try to work out how they fit together and what problems there are and like that's that's a thing that you do so that like there's also a way in which it's all kind of practice. <laughs> it's all, <laughs> But in that sense, I think, you know, there's a way in which philosophy just is a practice and there's a way in which they kind of help each other out. So thinking in abstractly about things can help you to, in your practice and like doing practice can illuminate things that you didn't see when you were thinking abstractly, to, to put it kind of broadly. No, that's great. I appreciate that clarification. In understanding kind of the nature of of the world, this impermanence that you that you write about and and also a bit about kind of discerning what is up to us. It kind of resonates with me with this the stoic kind of what is within our control. Like how does is there similarities there? How does that connect? Yeah, there's definitely similarities in that I guess I feel like both of those traditions are broadly speaking inwardly focused at least from a practical point of view. Both Buddhists, Buddhists and Stoics have a they have a view of how reality is and they sort of defend it philosophically. But when it comes to their practices, their practices are often about retraining your responses. And and sometimes there's overlap and sometimes they come apart. A focus on changing how your mind responds to things rather than attempting to change the outside world directly is a kind of general point in common. Shantideva, this Buddhist philosopher Shantideva has this famous example where he says, the ground everywhere is really um, 
rough and it hurts your feet if you walk on it. And one solution is to try to cover the entire world in leather to make it soft on your feet. Another solution is you can just get enough leather for the bottoms of your feet, strap them on, call them sandals, and then that's a little bit like the world being covered, right? That's, I think, expresses this kind of like, well, there are things about the world that you can't change. I mean, obviously, Buddhists are like politically engaged and they do try to bring about social change. But there are certain features of the world that are unpleasant. You know, people die, people, you can't stop people from lying ever or dying or things like that. And in that case, what you can do is kind of change how you're relating to them in a way that is deals with them directly. One way to deal with it is to denial, is to say, just pretend like it doesn't happen until the very last minute or something like that. But the Buddhist strategy involves facing these things and then reconceptualizing or retraining your responses and really interrogating what they are and internalizing them as part of the reality and then forging a way to respond to the world in light of those as facts. So like if you're coming from a Christian background, one thing I often liked is like in the Christian tradition, there's this problem, like the problem of evil. There's God and then like, but how how could this, how could these really bad things happen? Whereas you don't really have that in Buddhism because it's like the bad things are, it's like, that's like part of the starting point. Here's where we're going to start from. Really bad stuff happens in the world. Now what? So it's not like a problem. It's like, that's one of the assumptions on the list of things that we're going to grant for Buddhism. So it's, in that sense, it's it's a kind of very honest way to look at things. Oh, thank you for that. In reference to kind of in, in overview, uh, you know, the Four Noble Truths and the, the Eightfold Path, where do these kind of come into this kind of Buddhist guide to, to life that you wrote? I think of the Four Noble Truths as, as providing a structure for what what Buddhists are doing. And one way I think is helpful to think about the structure is the structure is actually playing on what happens in medical diagnosis. When you don't feel well and you go to the doctor, the doctor basically tells you, if you're lucky, for <laughs> plain truths, right? They tell you what disease you have. They tell you what the cause is. They tell you the prognosis. And then they tell you the treatment. Those are the Four Noble Truths. And the Buddha's kind of innovation, I think, in that is like taking that diagnostic framework and applying it to not just a physical ailment, but to like a broader human condition kind of element. And I think that's an important part of its universal appeal or like why people are interested in Buddhism, because it does have this kind of application of this method to a universal problem. In the, the next couple chapters, you know, heaps and, and hurricanes and, and who do you think you are, are a bit of the more kind of, to me, complex and a little more kind of difficult to, to grasp. In heaps and hurricanes, you write, realizing most things we interact with are, are not the way we seem. They are composite heaps. And how would you say coming to this understanding can really kind of alter our everyday lives. Yeah, I guess to abstract away from some some of the details, most generally 
the Buddhist insight is that we felt like we were a certain kind of thing. We felt a certain way about our place in the world. And that is not the kind of thing we are. And that is that was a mistake. And we don't actually have that place in the world. So you can kind of feel like you're an independent, fully formed individual. And then you're kind of plopped into these situations. And then you relate to other people. And then you relate to certain events. But Buddhists are pointing out that like, there's actually not a you. There's a bunch of mental and physical events that relate to each other. And that's all there is. And then beyond that, those mental and physical events don't exist in a vacuum. And in fact, they emerge out of certain conditions. Seeing that helps you to see that like, it's not like you exist prior to situations and relations and things like that. But you in fact, kind of emerge out of those. And you need them to be what you are. If they if you didn't have those, you wouldn't be what you are. You kind of depend you depend on them, and they also depend on you. I mean, this is some of the hardest philosophy, I would say, in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's, it's hard to... But that's the basic idea, is that our fundamental feeling of ourselves as separate individuals is a mistake. And rooting out that mistake is a difficult task philosophically, and it's also a difficult task psychologically. Would you say that that work is like kind of cognitive or you know head and heart type of thing or or really kind of both and in terms of you know embodying some of these these concepts i think one thing that's good about buddhism is it's very sensitive to the fact that people have different problems and different tendencies and they're going to require different remedies so i just think a very buddhist answer would be like from people like me, I'm a philosopher, so I'm a very uh, heady person. I have to think through this stuff. That's the way I have to do it. For someone else, they might need a different kind of method. They That might not be the way for them. So I think that there's both thinking work and, I guess you might say, emotional or perceptual work to be done, because those are all important aspects. But for any given person, they might need more in one area or another. No, I, I appreciate that. And you, you definitely, it comes through in, in the writing of how you're kind of holding these things lightly and that there's many different, it, it really depends on, on many different, you know, individuals and circumstances, etc. I mean, the idea of the book is it's like part philosophy, part kind of self-help. But one of the things that's really hard about writing self-help and I think why there's so much bad self-help <laughs> is like you have to it's like giving advice when you don't really know anything about the person so it's kind of like yeah if I'm ad addressing a reader it's like I don't know anything about them or their situation <laughs> or what their past is or what problems they have or like it's hard to give advice when you don't know those those things and so it ends up either you give kind of very trivial vague advice or you give specific advice that's only going to land for a tiny sliver of 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 the people who happen to pick up the book so i think it's that's a hard line to walk definitely how about buddha nature that you write about in one of the chapters how do you describe that oh buddha nature <laughs> uh, buddha nature is part of what's thorny about that is different buddhists will talk about it in pretty different ways since I've covered my ass by saying that, I'll try to say what it, what it means. It's like, I think 
a pretty good starting point is this idea that all sentient beings have some kind of innate solution to the problem in them. Sometimes this is described as a capacity. That is like there's a capacity. Sometimes it's described in a stronger way of something more actual. But in the capacity, they'll they'll say things like there's this seed stone example, like if you process it in the right way, you can get oil from a seed. But there's like no processing you can do to get oil from a stone. It just doesn't have. So you kind of be like, well, the seed has oil in it in a certain way. It has a kind of potential. And we're supposed to have that for solving the problem for like understanding how the world is. So that's that's a kind of fairly straightforward way to talk about it. I link it with this idea of like the problem that I set up the book with. Some later Buddhists will say like it's only an apparent problem. Like there never was a problem. The problem was there was never a problem with how the world is exactly. There was a problem with my mistaken relation to it. So the world was always fine. And I was kind of always fine. I just had to clear up this mistake. That's a kind of different way of seeing it. And in fact, certain Buddhist sects, when they talk about the life of the Buddha, will go this route where they say, in fact, the Buddha was always enlightened. And he only just pretended to do this life story as a as a kind of favor to us to teach us what to do. It's so it's all kind of an act or whatever. And and I think part of what motivates that is like this this Buddha nature stuff. How important is that that realization, you know, that it's kind of within us to to transcend that? Do you see that as a, you know, kind of a critical point or kind of a perception, I guess? I think well, here's how I feel today. <laughs> I, I think that there's a psychological tendency to think about the object of our perceptions or our emotions. And part of what Buddhism tries to do is to get you to think about not the object, but like the source. So here's an example. Someone makes me angry. And one thing is like, I can focus on that person and what they did, I, the object of my anger. But a lot of Buddhist advice is like, well, hang on. Think about what's causing the anger. What is the anger really? Why are you really angry about this? What presuppositions does the anger involve? Like that's a that's a shift in how you're relating to that. I think Buddhists are are pushing that way. So in the sense, here's an example I use. Sometimes when you stick a you can stick a pencil in a glass of water and it looks bent. And you might think, oh, the pencil's bent. And then you might examine more closely and, and be like, oh, I see. It's just this thing that happens in the water with light and blah, blah, blah. Maybe you learn it in a sciencey way. Maybe you learn it in a non-sciencey way by just playing with pencils and water. But certain ways of describing spiritual advancement, if you want to call it that, make it like, oh, I see. I fixed the pencil. Like it's about the kind of object, right? <laughs> and that's, you know, one way to think about it in Buddha nature is the pencil was never broken. When you realized that it was a mistake, the pencil was the same as it always had been. Nothing got fixed because nothing was really ever broken. You just realized this mistake that led you to misperceive what was going on and you corrected the mistake. But that's all that happened. So I one way to understand Buddha nature is like, that's what's going on. That's very helpful. I, I appreciate you elaborating on that. To transition kind of into part two of the book around practice, 
you know, you write about variety of, of Buddhist practice and it's obviously a big pond, many different variations. Could you kind of touch briefly a bit on the variation there? Yeah. So one of the th- things I wanted to like push back against is there's a kind of common view, especially in like North America, Europe, is that Buddhist practice means meditation. That's like what Buddhist practice is, is meditation. And uh, there's various criticisms of this. One is that the idea that all Buddhists should meditate is a fairly modern one. And it sort of emerges only in the modern period and is kind of projected back. But even now, if you go to places in Asia with a lot of Buddhists, people are doing a lot of different things. So I wanted to include things like venerating relics, pilgrimage. There's a Tibetan Buddhist practice called prostration. That's like you just sort of bow down before a kind of image or a a text or something or a teacher. There's another one called circumambulation, where it's like you walk clockwise around an important object. So I try to talk about those in a way that makes them understand like what they're supposed to do, because I think it's tempting to think about those things as quote unquote ritual. And when people talk about ritual, often what they mean is like something that other people do that they don't understand why they do it. And so then they call it a ritual. But then like once they understand the meaning, it doesn't feel they don't want to apply that label anymore. So I kind of wanted to describe practices outside of meditation like that in a way that would lead the reader to not want to describe them as ritual because they understand why you would do it, if that makes sense. <laughs> no, definitely. How about some of the different sects within in Buddhism, the you know Zen Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, and, uh, and many more? In your opinion, are there quite a bit of similarity between these different kind of, uh, I mean, how would you describe them? Yeah, I mean, they're in some ways similar, in some ways different is the boring answer. But I think part of it is like, I mean, we call them all Buddhists. And it's not just because they appeal to the authority of the Buddhas. This uh, hasn't been the case all the time. So in the early days of Western scholarship on Buddhism, the sort of Western scholars had this idea of like, older is better, older is more true, newer things are corruptions, so much so that they didn't like to describe Tibetan Buddhism as Buddhism. They would would call it Lamaism. You know, they thought it was such a corruption that they didn't even want to call it Buddhism. And, you know, that's like, there's a bunch of presuppositions there. And it's like, you could easily say, well, older is older, but like newer things are developments and they're kind of refinements. Like there's, there's actually positive ways you could describe that depending on, you know, what you like or what you don't like. But I think that, the, you know, there's things, broad things that Buddhist sects agree upon that is like, our common sense way of relating to the world is has problems and those problems need to be rooted out. The Buddha and the tradition surrounding him is like a source of answers or a source of Buddhists will say refuge. And I guess the the other thing that I was kind of surprised going into it, like when I first started, I think this is also, I was kind of importing from Christianity is different Christian sects. You want to say like, oh, this person's Presbyterian and this person's Calvinist. And you say, well, what are the points of doctrine on which they differ? What is the, what is the uh, you know, what is the sentence that one of them would shake their head yes to and the other one would shake their head no to? And sometimes differences between Buddhist sects work that way, but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's like, 
what texts you emphasize, what practices you think are more important. And there, it's much less a doctrinal thing and much more like, well, these are the texts that we like, and we like this guy. And so this is what we do. (laughs) And, you know, you can do that. That's what makes you, you. But like, what makes us, us is we do that. And we venerate the Lotus Sutra and we whatever. So I think there's also like different differences than (laughs) you might find in, in thinking about it just purely doctrinally. Uh, thank you. Around getting ready is a is another chapter. And as I said earlier, you really kind of hold lightly any particular paths or practices and, and really kind of suggest individual reflection to determine the, the kind of practice for you. Could you elaborate on, on getting started? Partly, I, I try to, rather than simply say like, hey, it depends, you're an individual, you got to figure it out. I try to give the kind of advice that's like, here's what I think you ought to reflect on <laughs> to figure out the answer to these questions. The things I, I think of are like, are you the sort of person that requires a lot of structure or does the structure feel oppressive to you? Do you need social support? Are you the kind of person who needs a gym buddy or are you kind of person who a gym buddy is totally unnecessary. So if, I mean, if you're talking about like, Hey, I want to start exercising, what should I do? And it's like, some people say, Oh, you got to get a gym buddy. And some people are like, (laughs) Oh, you got to make a schedule. Right. And it's like, depends. Like, are you a schedule person? Are you, are are you socially motivated? Like what's, what's going to happen there? So I think part of it is figuring out what energizes you and what keeps you going past the kind of initial excitement of doing something new and then trying to Take that into account when you're deciding whether you, for example, need a teacher or want to join a class or want to read something on your own or what. I mean, it's like it's it's going to depend on. And I think part of what it depends on is like being honest about your own tendencies and where you're at. There's a a few practices that you list that I was hoping we could touch on that are maybe not as as common. The first mindfulness of, of death Reading this, I kind of thought of the stoic kind of memento mori thing. How would you say in this context, like how does this practice help us to see clearly? So one of the, I mean, one of the ways is like, there's a bunch of stuff that it's doing. So some of the stuff is it's motivating. You can kind of feel like, well, yeah, yeah, I'll do it later. Like I had this a lot, like pre-pandemic, there was all this stuff that I thought I would do eventually when I had time. And then especially early in the pandemic, I had a lot of time where I had to stay at home and some of them I did and some of them I didn't. And the ones I didn't, I had to like really be like, am I ever going to do this? If I'm not doing it now, you can kind of think, yeah, I want to reflect on these spiritual, broad, deeper aspects of life. But, you know, I'm a busy person and like I have a job and kids and whatever and like I'll do it later. And so part of it is, like always happens, later becomes later becomes later becomes never, right? So part of it is if you're thinking about death, and one thing that Buddhists are often highlighting is that the time of death is uncertain. You can't be sure that death, I mean, death isn't something that just happens to old people, it happens to all people. So you have to be like, well, I better do it now, right? So part of it has this motivating thing. And part of it has this aspect of like, when you're thinking about death, you're thinking about the self, what you are. What does death mean? What is ending when it's ending? When you reflect on the fact that you and everyone you know are going to die, then one of the things that you notice is like, I only have a limited time with these people. I guess speaking from my own experience, when I reflect on that, I'm like, shit, I only have 
a limited amount of time, then I don't even know how much time it is. Is this really how I want to spend it? Being mad at them for some not emptying the dishwasher or like being late to a meeting or whatever. I think in a sense, it turns the volume down on certain things and turns the volume up on other things. And I think that's part of what's going That's part of what's going on, I think. In thinking of this practice and, and kind of hearing you elaborate a bit on it, it it seems so important, kind of the philosophy, you know, part one of it, of understanding the nature of things. It's that everything is impermanent, kind of pairs and, and integrates with this particular practice. Is that how you see? Do you kind of see like a, a pairing in terms of understanding and, and practice together? Yeah. Yeah, I do think I do think that. And I think there's certain ways in which the reason that I have to put the philosophy section first is in other contexts, people would get that philosophy kind of by osmosis. And it's kind of hard to understate how much stuff people can get contextually. I used to do this in, in a class and I at, at one point I got kind of like discouraged when I was teaching this class on Buddhist philosophy. And I was like, you guys, I'm trying to tell you all the stuff. But every time I try to tell you one thing, I'm like, oh, right, 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 right. I have to tell you these <laughs> other things. And they were kind of like, what do you mean? Just tell us the thing. And I remember saying to some student, I was like, tell me something that you tell me a fact about something you like. And, you know, the student was like, so and so he had certain like student like ice hockey. So it's like, so and so just got traded to the Red Wings or something like that. And I was like, wait, hockey is played on ice. <laughs> and he was like, "Ugh." So you can kind of imagine it's like you have to be like, okay, there's a game called hockey. There's this stuff called ice. Okay, there's a thing called a puck and there's, okay, there's a material called rubber, right? You know, like you have to like, each time you try to explain something, you realize that, oh, there's a bunch of background involved with that. So I think in a certain way, if you're coming from a place inside where this is kind of the status quo, you get a lot of that for free and you're not even thinking about it. And maybe you can't even explain it, but it kind of is around. So... I think part of the reason I'm what I'm doing in the philosophy section is like trying to give you that in an, an accessible way. And then when you get the practices, you're kind of like, oh, right. These practices exist in this whole system. And that's what's happening. I lo- love it. Appreciate that. How about kindness and joy? Do you kind of see that in terms of pairing with this interconnectedness of of us? Yeah. And I think that in a certain way, the meditations on death or the body or impermanence are kind of counterbalanced by kindness, joy kind of kind of aspects, because in the same way, that's like if you if you look at the Four Noble Truths, the first two are like quite pessimistic. It's like about all the bad things in life or whatever. And then the second two are like, hey, there's a good prognosis and here's the solution. They're kind of optimistic. The similar thing kinds of works like if you're just doing this meditation on like the body and death and impermanence, you start to feel this kind of nihilism. Who, what does it matter? Who, whatever this kind of, but then when you see the compassionate stuff, you're kind of like, oh, right. Sort of what I was alluding to where it's like, we only have limited time together. And actually my, my well-being is intimately wrapped up with the well-being of others. Although I might not be an independent self or whatever, that means that I'm a kind of dependent relational self. And I have this kind of connection, uh, a a very essential connection to everything else going on. So I think it it kind of counterbalances it in that sense. Another important chapter I I thought was the sending and receiving, which I'm not familiar with. Uh, The first I've 
I've heard of it, and kind of this changing hostility into compassion. Could you speak to this this practice? I mean, it's an Indian practice, but it really gets going in Tibetan stuff. And there's a Tibetan a whole genre in Tibetan called lojong, or mind training. Um, and this is part of that. But basically, it involves you kind of visualizing hostility, often as like smoke, and you kind of inhale it. And then you imagine a kind of bright light inside you. And when the smoke touches it, it becomes fresh air, sunshine, something really refreshing, nice. And then you exhale that out. I think part of what that's doing is it's changing your, how you think of yourself in the following way. It's like you can think of yourself as like, I'm a kind of factory and I convert hostility into compassion. And there's a way in which that doesn't make you a doormat exactly, but it does make you kind of able to take in things that are usually bad and relate to them in a different way. And I think it being visual is part of this, like not merely intellectual. It's like, they're not saying like, hey, you could put it in an abstract way. You could say, hey, just uh, when there's an obstacle, just like change it into something good, right? And it's like, that's not <laughs> going to do it, right? Because what you what you're what you're trying to do is change your fundamental responses, your knee-jerk responses to these things happening. And it's obviously, it's like, I should say, it's like, all this is super hard. <laughs> I certainly haven't done it. Uh, but this is like a tool for kind of changing that part of it. That's not just like, oh, I read this book and it said that I should change obstacles into opportunities or whatever, like whatever slogan you want to say. But you're kind of like, well, how do I change my patterns of responses? And one way is like, We'll just visualize. And I think people can kind of think like, oh, these visualizations, like that's, does that work? Does it whatever? But I think in other contexts, people do think that it's, that it works. Suppose you wrong me in some way. And then I just spend weeks and weeks and weeks stewing in my room about how awful you are and how much I hate you and whatever. You might be like, oh, that's really going to like mess up your outlook, right? <laughs> so we do accept that it's like if you stew on things and you visualize things for a long time, that could make you a bitter person or that could like change you whatever. And this is kind of just taking that psychological fact and trying to do the opposite with it. How would you say this connects with, you know, from a Christian philosophy of unconditional love or mercy and and, and those particular aspects? I mean, there's definitely, I think it's definitely shared. I mean, Buddhists are often talking about how they care about all sentient beings, right? So all sentient beings is all, that's all sentient beings. And part of a lot of the techniques are about the really hard cases. It's like, it's easy to care about all sentient beings. And then like you meet a sentient being that you happen to like. <laughs> Partly it's all means all. And it means people that don't wish you well. It means people that are annoying. It means... Donald Trump, it means, you know, it's like there's hard cases that you, if you take this idea that in the abstract people find very beautiful and inspiring, but actually try to like take it seriously, there's hard cases. <laughs> uh, so I think that's part of what's going on. I think it's quite similar to the Christian case. You write in the, in the final chapter, getting over yourself, understanding not just intellectually, but viscerally that you're composite, relational, and impermanent. Could you speak to how you kind of see the difference between this intellectual and, and visceral? I think of an example that I heard in a philosophy talk many years ago. Sometimes these tall towers, there's these towers that are like way hundreds of stories tall. 
sometimes on their like observation decks, they'll have like a glass floor and you can see all the way down. And one thing, if you hang out there, you can observe that like some people don't want to go on the glass floor, (laughs) (laughs) but they'll believe that it's safe. So, for example, you can see people who don't want to go on them, but they'll let their kids jump up and down on it. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess there's a sense where you're like, do they believe that it's safe? Of course, they're letting their kids go on it, but there's something that they still feel like they don't want to do it. So I think this happens a lot where it's like the idea comes easy. It's easy to say the idea, hey, you should care about all sentient beings or like, hey, you should do whatever. But the hard part is really changing your psychology so that you realize that or realize in the sense of embody that or actualize that or make it make it real. In the same way where it's like, it's easy to be like, that glass floor is safe. And it's harder to be like, get out there on it, right? (laughs) No, I appreciate that. That's a great example. As we start to wrap up the conversation, I just have a few few kind of closing questions. In the process of of writing this book, which I imagine took took quite a bit of time, how would you say it changed the way you you see yourself in the world? Oh. Man, (laughs) (laughs) part of what I learned in writing it is sort of like how I said about philosophy being a practice. I mean, when I pitched the idea, I thought of them as quite separate. And then as I was writing it, I was like, you know, going through these ideas carefully, it seems like that is a practice. (laughs) And I had never thought about philosophy in that way. I thought of philosophy as a kind of a body of arguments or a body of texts or claims or something like that. So that kind of helped me understand what I'm doing differently. And I say that as a person whose job is doing philosophy. (laughs) (laughs) For somebody listening, looking for it, you know, a simple, just kind of really tiny step to, to see clearly any suggestions come to mind. I guess I would say, Forget about my book, forget about all books, forget about the internet, forget about podcasts. Just take some time, just look at what's going on in your head. For me, I go for a walk and I do that, but like, if you can just get a little bit of time, and then when when you feel something or you think something, be like, where is this coming from? Why am I feeling like this? Why is this happening? What are the conditions of it? What's its genesis? That's the thing you don't need. Like, you don't need to buy anything. You don't need an internet connection. You just, it's just that that's just being a reflective person. And, you know, one way that that plays out is in a Buddhist way, but there are other ways it plays out. And if it plays out another way, if that way helps you to live a more connected and, and happier life, that's the way for you. So do just, (laughs) just do that. Just do that. Even if for a couple minutes. I appreciate that, Nick. And after you do that, I highly encourage everyone to pick up the book, see clearly a, a, a Buddhist guide to life. I thank you for your time and effort in writing the book. I really appreciate you have a further reading section in the book. Any suggested starting points from, from the list that come to mind? I really like, there's a philosopher that used to be at University of New Mexico named Richard Hayes. He has a website with a lot of, of his essays on there, and a lot of his essays are really great. He has a collection that was published in the 90s called Land of No Buddha. I really liked those as an entry point. 
I appreciate that. Nick, before we wrap up, is there anything that we didn't discuss today that we should have? Oh, no, we discussed so much. I think you really (laughs) covered it. (laughs) I greatly appreciate it. This has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? I have a website that's nickbomarito.com, N-I-C-B-O-M-M-A-R-I-T-O.com. And that's got my philosophy papers and other stuff that I do. So if you're curious about me, that's where you can find, find more about me. Yeah, and it's a great website. You do uh, comics and your own artwork, which is on the, I take it that's all yours on the, on the website, yeah, correct? Yeah, I always loved drawing since I was a kid, so I still try to do it. Now, now that there's more Zoom meetings, I, I'm drawing even more than, than ever. Cool. Yeah, I, I really like the website. I encourage everybody to check it out, and we'll, uh, we'll include links to any books discussed and, and to, your, to your website in the show notes. Nick Bomarito, I really appreciate your time today. It has been a pleasure. Great. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thanks. Thank you for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to our free email meditations. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life. Right to your inbox. Go to perennialleader.com. Lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. And until next time, Be wise and be well.